Praise the Lord. All right, well, we can turn in our Bibles. I want you to actually find two spots. Um, last week we, we started in Exodus chapter 24, and uh, also you can uh, just note Second uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you could just mark that as well. Now, you will recall, for those that were here last week, that we, uh, we started to consider the topic, the glory of God. And so, um, I began to realise just how exhaustive the topic is and, and some of the things I touched upon last week and I said that I would um, uh, continue to consider it this week and it may well be that I'll consider it next week as well because the deeper you go into this and the more that opens up and the more that becomes applicable and uh, for us to consider. So uh, we'll see where the Lord leads us on that one. But what we did look at, just to quickly recap, was we considered the progressive nature of God's desire and to dwell with men. And so the glory of God being reflective of the presence of God in his glorious splendour and holiness. And so, but we also considered the word glory as it associates with its, uh, you know, God's self-revelation to us. And so as we grow in the knowledge of God, we are being exposed and partaking of the glory of God in that sense. And uh, you'll also remember that we touched on the word that is found within Exodus there 24 uh, 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 that relates to uh, the word, the root word of the word glory is, comes from a word meaning weighty or heavy. And that is in the context that God is to be so highly esteemed in our hearts and in our midst. And it's a, it relates to a disposition. So rather than uh, uh, take things lightly, so to speak, in the presence of God, it is uh, imperative that our attitude and disposition is such that we are giving God glory. Amen. Because when God is on the scene and when God comes in his holiness, then uh, uh, the way in which we relate to God and re, uh, respond to God is very, very important and we understand that God is all-glorious and uh, we as men, uh, having uh, uh, obviously without Christ, we now sin, is, a, is a, under, abiding under the wrath of God. But for us that are in Christ, well, it's a different story. Praise the Lord, as we've just noted and we'll tie together in some ways with the message this morning. But I want to focus in a little further as we consider the issue of the glory of God and um, I want to make the comparison. Remember last week we tracked some of these aspects that dealt with the fall with our text where God's now on the mountain and, and the temple and the tabernacle and we looked at that which we touched on the the, the, the believer in Christ, which is going to be an emphasis this morning, and also um, that which relates to future, where the glory of God will be manifested in the earth and in the new Jerusalem and so forth. And so we track that in that sense. But what I want to do today is I want us to make a comparison of the old covenant or the first covenant in relation to the new covenant this, uh, that we have in Christ Jesus. Because both covenants had glory and uh, are glorious in their own way. But the new covenant, as we will see, and as scripture describes to us, is far, far, far more glorious. Amen. And so much so that it is uh, important for us to identify this because uh, our position in Christ is such a wonderful thing and all that it incorporates and all that it entails. The glory of God. In actual fact, in Romans chapter 8, uh, in verse 18, the scripture says that there is a glory that is to be revealed in us. And again, this is future. We looked at the glory of God as it relates to the earth and, how, and the new Jerusalem and so forth. But you see, there is a glory that uh, is manifest in us as, as Christians when we are born again. And the scripture refers to there is a glory that will be, is going to be revealed in us. Amen. And so uh, it's going to get more glorious for us. Amen. In a, in, a, in a personal sense, in our own relationship to God. 
But you see, in light of all these glorious truths, the question is, well, what about now? How does God's glory relate to us now in our present reality, in our present life? As we sit here this morning, what is the relationship of God's glory to us as believers and as children of God. And it's in identifying that reality. It's in understanding that reality. It's in experiencing the glory of God as it is manifest to us as children of God that we can rejoice in Him, that we can have peace with God, as our brothers pointed out, that we can be complete and are complete in Him, that we abide in His fullness because in His presence there is fullness of joy. Amen? And so, to identify this and to see this, the context becomes the two covenants specifically as we compare them both to identify the glory of God. You know, it's interesting because we'll read it again as we did last week and we touched upon it. But we read about, you know, you read the Old Testament and you read how God's presence come down on Mount Sinai and there was thunderings and the dark cloud and, and uh, uh, it rested there for six days and the children of Israel would have been beholding this uh, wonderful sight. And we think, oh, how glorious it would have been to have been there. You know, if I was alive in those days, it would be different. But yet, when we think like that, we are failing to understand and grasp the reality of what it is that we have now. In actual fact, in the New Covenant, what the glory that we have is superior, excels the glory that is being manifested there. And if we can understand that, if we can experience that, then our lives are going to be enriched this morning. And that is the intent of what I want to achieve as we consider the glory of God. So let's read in Exodus, we'll read it again, 15 to 18, that's where we read from last week. And then we'll proceed. Uh, Then Moses went up into the mountain and a great cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. We were we, in our text, all right? Praise the Lord, we just read it. And so, we, uh, again, I've read here and I've started here again for a specific reason and for a specific purpose because as we read about this and there's a reference in the glory of God that is being so manifested amongst the people and what a glorious encounter it is, what a glorious sight it would be. And as much as we uh, observe the glory that is being manifested here, what we must realize is in the greater context of things, the Bible in the New Testament refers to this and uh, the scripture says that the glory, this glory was passing away. So in, in light of that reality, it was, uh, it was, yes, it was part of the plan and purpose of God, but in reality the truth be be known that this glory was that was being manifested and was operating and, and seen throughout the children of Israel, it was a glory that was passing away, the scripture says. And it makes reference to this in Second Corinthians chapter 3, which we'll read more extensively of in a moment. But what we also find in this in Second Corinthians is Paul refers to the old covenant he refers to this particular glory that we are referring to and uh, he refers to the whole dispensation of the law of Moses the covenant there that is associated and uh, Paul refers to it listen to this as a as a a ministry of death he refers to it as a ministry of condemnation And so when you hear the terms that are being associated with this manifestation 
of God's presence amongst the children of Israel and how it, was, uh, how it worked itself out in amongst the, their lives in, in relation to the covenant, the scripture says that the whole aspect of the law that was coming forth from here, that's where Moses came down later with the, uh, from the Mount with the Ten Commandments, this whole ministry was a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation. Or as Paul says, uh, it was passing away. Now this is important for us to understand. It's important for us to grasp this. And this is why if you turn into 2 Corinthians uh, chapter, chapter 3, you'll, be, you'll begin to see that in verse 6 Paul says uh, these words and he's, making, he's, he's about to make a comparison of both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And in writing he says these words, For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter kills. And when he was referring to the letter, he's referring to the, the Old Covenant. He's talking about the law of Moses. And uh, he's referring to it and he refers to it in these terms, the letter kills. And in the comparison of the New Covenant, he says, but the Spirit gives life. And this is very important for us to understand because the, what we're talking about, as we can see, is the difference between death and the difference of, between life. Life and death in association with the covenants of God and in relation to the glory of God, one where the glory of God is passing away and one in the new covenant where the glory of God is being manifested and we are going from glory to glory. Hallelujah. So there's a distinction that must be made and identified. In actual fact, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, and uh, James was touching upon this this morning, the scripture says, if there was a law that could give life, then righteousness would have come by the law. See, Paul is talking about the insufficiency, the in, uh, how the law, though being perfect, cannot achieve God's end because the law kills. The law gives us a knowledge of sin. The law makes us guilty before God. The law only, it, it, the Bible says the strength of sin is the law. And so the law only brings out the worst in us and it's not glorious, it's filthy, it's our sinfulness. And if there was a law that could bring righteousness, then righteousness would have come by the law. If there was a law that could have given life. That's what the scripture actually says. If there was a law that could give life, then it would have been God would have done it. But it's, he, he, there was not. He could not. Because the letter kills. And so the righteousness of God cannot be attained by, you, by way of the law. And that's what Romans is and Galatians are both referring to. But you see, the glory of God that was manifest on Mount Sinai is something different, or, or of the same, but in a different context, as we'll see, that relates to the new covenant. You know what's important as well when we consider death, that the letter kills. If, we were to, if you were to follow through and read about Moses after chapter 24, here he is on the mountain, and he's in the glory of God. But yet the scripture tells us as well that what happens after that. And it's not pleasant, is it? In actual fact, uh, after Moses has been in the glory, after the Israel has seen the glory of God, the reality is this, Israel rebels against the Lord immediately. Moses was in the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And so they're restless after this period. And so what is it that the children of Israel do? They make a golden calf, and they start in, and they automatically enter into idolatry. And Aaron was a part of this. And when Moses comes down, he says to Aaron, "What happened?" And he says, "I don't know. They just gave me their jewelry, and I put it in their fame. And look what happened—just came up." <laughs> no, it's a bit more sinister than that. <laughs> Amen. We'd like to say it happens like that, but it's not, because Israel. Uh, engaged immediately in idolatry and so here comes the law which is perfect comes from the glory of God and Moses comes down from the mountain and the people of God are corrupting themselves and Moses gets those tablets and what does he do? He breaks them. 
because they and so they have already transgressed the law of God. They have already been in violation of the glory of God, and they have sinned against the Lord. And uh, and as a result of that sin, there came death and condemnation upon the children of Israel. You can read it in chapter 32 of Exodus, verse 28. The Bible's referring to this. And it says, as you know, so God is obviously now going to judge uh, uh, the children of Israel. And it's funny, well, not funny, but it's interesting because it says that, uh, that uh, God says, let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to the entrance throughout the camp. Let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. Verse 28, so the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. So out of that, the glory of God has been manifested on Sinai. They have seen it and yet in, within a matter of 40 days, they're already engaging in disobedience and rebellion against the Lord. And already the, the law of God has been broken and the result is condemnation and death. 3,000 people were killed as a result of that, of that particular day. And so when Paul says that the, the, the old covenant, the letter, the law, is a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation, he has this in mind. And this is only a, a, the first instance where we see of a history of Israel that is littered with failure and sin and disobedience to God. True? But yet, this is how we find the context of these words where Paul says, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So if we look at Second Corinthians chapter 3, and I want to just read with you the verses that proceed from verse 6. I want to read from verse 7 to verse 11 for now. But listen to Paul's words because he's, again, remember, he's comparing the covenants and he's specifically referring to the glory of each covenant, the glory of God that is manifest and associated with each covenant. Now keep listen carefully to what he says in verse 7. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones, was glorious. You see, the law of God is perfect, church. The law of God is, is, is glorious because it reflects the holiness and the character and person of God. So the, but, but yet still, in light of that reality, and Paul acknowledges that it was glorious, but it was still a ministry of death, he refers to it. So that the children of Israel, verse 7, could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Hallelujah. Paul is touching upon the ministry of the Spirit. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The law could not give life. The law brought about death, but the Spirit of God, amen, is that which in, infuses us with the life of God. And the, he's referring to the ministry of the Spirit which relates to the new covenant in Christ Jesus. And he says, is it not more glorious? Absolutely it is, amen. Verse 9, for if the ministry of condemnation had glory, which it did, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Exceeds much more in glory. You see, when we're talking about the glory of God now in the new covenant, we're talking, yes, the old covenant had a glory. The glory of God was made manifest. But the scripture is now introducing us to the fact that in the new covenant and that which relates to the spirit, the glory excels. Hallelujah. The glory is much more. The ministry of righteousness. And this is what our, our, our brother James was talking about in the communion because under the law, the law made nobody righteous. It condemned men and brought us under the wrath of God. And there was no law that could, could impute to us righteousness. 
So God, amen, through Christ and the sacrifice of Christ achieved that and in doing so, now through the Spirit of God, the righteousness of God is imputed to us and the Spirit gives life. Thank God, amen. I have the righteousness of Christ. In, it has been imputed to me through the cross and through the sacrificial uh, um, offering of Christ at Calvary. Salvation has been wrought and I am a beneficiary of the righteousness of God. I'm a beneficiary of the spirit of life in Christ. And how much more, Paul says, how much more glorious is this. He says in verse 10, For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. Now think about that. He's saying whatever glory we identify, and there is a glory that's associated with Moses on the mountain, God's presence is there. God has come down there. So undeniably there is a glory, but the manner in which it relates to mankind is so insignificant to that which relates to the new covenant. Because what we are partakers of what we have inherited and our relationship and experience with the glory of God excels, the Bible says. Because of the glory that excels. I love that. When you hear that, the glory that excels. And in verse 11 he says, For if what is passing away was glorious... What remains is much more glorious. Praise the Lord. What remains is much more glorious. And it's in light of those words that we can reflect upon the reality of our position in Christ Jesus. Because what is it that makes the new covenant so glorious? What is it that excels? What is it that uh, when Paul says the Spirit gives life, when he makes reference to these things, what is it specifically that he is talking about? Now remember last week we touched upon the progressive aspect of God's glory. For example, here in Moses, in Exodus 24, God is on the mountain. And the and only person can go up there is Moses. Everyone else is separate. But then we have God, he moves after the building of the tabernacle. The glory of God fills the tabernacle. And that is, uh, in, uh, and that is uh, sur- uh, the children of Israel are surrounded by the tabernacle <coughs> or they're surrounding the tabernacle and the glory of God is being manifested right before them now. Not on a mountain, but actually in their presence. But still, no one can approach the Holy of Holies, can they? We understand the structure of the, of the temple and the tabernacle and, and what it teaches us is God's holy and we're not. God is full of glory and we're not. And we can't just uh, haphazardly go into the Holy of Holies because to do so would invite death. Because the the letter kills. You know that. So you just couldn't. uh, The glory of God was manifest. The glory of God was there as such. And it could be observed. But, uh, amen, it could not be partaken of. So, and so... So here's this progressive aspect. And so we have the Moses on the mountain. We have the tabernacle. We have the temple. Uh, again, reflective of these truths. But amen, the Bible tells us in Hebrews that these things are a shadow of the things that are to come and the substances of Christ. See, all of these things teach us and are typified by the reality that is to come in Christ Jesus. And what is that reality this morning? We know that Christ himself said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And Christ who gave himself and as he hung upon that cross and said, it is finished. What happens, Luke tells us that the veil in the temple that separated God's holiness, God's glory from the people, that veil was torn in two, literally shredded. And we know that that is symbolic of the fact because uh, what we find now is God is not contained, amen, in his relationship to men in a 
tent or in a temple or in a holy place that is separate from sinners. Because of Christ's sacrifice, and now we are, have been imputed with the righteousness of God, we have been forgiven and we're right with God. And now what? The glory of the new covenant is this. In Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now the glory of God it dwells in me. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ in me. Now think about that for a moment. You see, we, we, we understand, especially when we're new Christians, yes, I'm forgiven of my sins. We understand the basics of the ABC of Christian faith and that's how it is. But when you grow in a revelation and understanding as you feed upon the milk of God's word and then you begin to partake of the meat, you begin to realize these glorious truths that are associated with our salvation. Now Christ is in me. I am holy and I have been declared righteous and I am accepted in the beloved. I am holy in him. And now the glory dwells within me. That is the glory that excels. How much more glorious is that church? That's glorious. And when you ponder that, when you understand that, you can't help but be in awe because who am I? Who are we? We're filthy sinners. And yet God has done so much for us and not only that, he has created a way of his own doing in which to reconcile us to himself so he can deposit his righteousness and his presence, his spirit and his glory and give us life, eternal life. Eternal life is not something that is future, although that is a, a, in, a, a, the case. We have eternal life now. How glorious are these things? Praise the Lord. That's why Paul says in the next verse, verse 12, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. You know, the boldness of speech and the confidence we have is not in ourselves. People say, who do you think you are? I know who. one thing that God teaches you is you, is, uh, you begin to realize who you are. And I tell you what, as Paul said, I'm the chiefest of sinners. The longer you go as a Christian, the more you realize the depths of your own heart. This heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But yet, in light of all of that, in Christ Jesus, I'm holy. I'm righteous. I have, in positionally in Christ, I'm sanctified, set apart. And all of a sudden, you understand your, 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 uh, your, who you are in Christ Jesus and you use great boldness of speech. That's a confidence that comes from God. Because as new Christians, uh, not everyone walks in that confidence. I know I didn't. I had to grow into that boldness of speech. Because, you know, for the Christian, for various reasons, and there's a myriad of reasons for this, but nevertheless, we, we, uh, we have to grow in our security in Christ. And therefore, we, we, we understand our position. And all that does is it gives you great boldness of speech, great confidence. And that's what Paul is referring to here when he, when he makes mention of these things. But, you know, there's so many things that we could touch upon and talk about. I mean, Romans 8 says that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. You see, we're, we're not looking at that. See, Romans is a beautiful chapter because it deals not just with that which is to come, which it does because it talks about a glorious body. It talks about a redemption that is awaiting us. It talks about a glory that will be revealed in us. But you know, Romans chapter 8 tells us of the glory that is now. The glory that is now. We have the first fruit of the Spirit. We have a, heaven's already deposited in our hearts. We already have the life of Christ. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life. That's what we live by. 
There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not according to the flesh, and that's important, but according to the Spirit. And if you walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, Paul says that the Spirit gives life to our mortal bodies. And so that which is in us, the glory of God, becomes manifest in and through our lives. Praise the Lord. The glory of God. You see, the old covenant was a ministry of death, and the new covenant is a ministry of life. And not only that, we see it typified further, this issue of the ministry of life, because we just read before where Moses comes down from the mountain and the tablets are broken and the Bible says that 3,000 were killed that day as a result of the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. But you see, when the Spirit came, what happened? On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved. 3,000 souls inherited eternal life. 3,000 souls were declared righteous in the sight of God. You see, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The old covenant was an administration of death. The new covenant is an administration of life. And it's utterly, it's been reversed. And so you can see the contrast of the old and the new. And so here it is. Uh, the glory of God is, uh, as, uh, uh, is, is being manifest as Peter preaches. And they say, what must I do to be saved? And he instructs them. And then they become partakers of the divine nature. And the glory of God is, comes down on the Pentecost like a mighty rushing wind. But God said, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And see, when a person is born of God, the glory of God resides in, in the heart of the believer. Praise the Lord. Christ in us, the hope of glory. You see, we can read Romans 8. We can touch upon various aspects. Because, it, as I said to you before, Romans 8 talks about the suffering of this life. And we can, and you know, uh, in actual fact, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about a glorious body that we will receive. Amen? But the Bible says in Romans 8 that we will, uh, as the creation yearns, so too do we yearn because we are waiting. See, the glory of God has already been deposited, but there is a glory that is coming when we will put off this tent. I'm, I know how I've been and I know how others have been, and I tell you, we're not getting any younger, are we, church? I'm like, oh, gosh, what's wrong with my back? <laughs> I'm getting older. But you see, in the midst of suffering and in the midst of hardship, in the midst of trial and tribulation, we still have the glory of God. Because He is in us. And God always causes us to triumph in Christ. It doesn't matter what happens externally, internally, I am strong in the Lord and in His grace. And his grace is sufficient and his strength is made perfect in my weakness. And as I, as I ponder upon these realities, as I profess them, as I meditate upon them, as I thank God and I, I, I have that revelation and that boldness of speech, that uh, faith speaks, remember of that, uh, I've said this before, and in doing so we kind of uh, come to that place uh, of uh, uh, faith uh, in God and we experience Victory, peace, comfort, and all of those things that come from the glory that is within us. How glorious is that, amen? Romans 8, whom he justified, these he glorified. So let's look a little bit further. I want to touch upon something else here. Because I've made mention of the fact that there is a progressive nature to the glory of God, actually in relation to the earth, because we looked at that last week where, um, you know, we find this from the garden to the mountain to the tabernacle, now in the believer, but ultimately will be manifest in the millennial reign of Christ, the glory of God 
as the water, uh, the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea and all that relates to that. And then ultimately in Revelations, the New Jerusalem, where there'll be no need for a sun, but the glory of God will fill all in all. But you see, there is also a progressive aspect that relates to the glory of God that is in us. You see, we've already touched upon now the glory of God that abides and resides within the believer. But you know, that glory, the scripture tells us, is progressive. Not only in the sense of that which is to come as in the future, but I'm talking about in this life now, in what we call the process of sanctification. And, and as we will see, Paul will refer to words in which we, he refers to as we are being changed from glory to glory. So look, read with me. Go back to 2 Corinthians. I want you to look at verse... Uh, Verse 17, we'll, look at, we'll start there, of chapter 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with, an, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now remember here, we're talking about the progressive nature of the glory of God that is already in us. And Paul is clear when he makes this statement because again he's making a comparison in the previous verses of the Old Covenant and Moses even and the children of Israel because that veil was always there. But he says that veil is taken away in Christ You know that because Moses had to uh, because of the, his countenance and the glory that was manifesting from Moses, the children of Israel couldn't look at him. So he put a veil. And that veil uh, is symbolic of their position and our position. But in Christ, the veil is taken away and the glory of God is in us. But you see, now Paul's referring to a progressive, the progressive nature of that glory as it, play, as it works itself out in Christian life and as we walk with the Lord. You see, in verse 18, Paul says, But we all, with unveiled face, that's our position in Christ. There's nothing in the way. He says, We are beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. Now, think of a mirror. We know what a mirror is used for. Okay? You look at a mirror and you get a clear reflection of who you are. Okay? And you look in the mirror, and you see all your little imperfections. <laughs> you see all the blemishes. You see that you're not as thin as you once were. I don't have that six-pack anymore. <laughs> but you see, the mirror gives us a true account of what we really are. Amen? what we really look like. And so uh, there's two aspects I want to consider here. If you actually can turn to, um, uh, because uh, James chapter 1, because James refers to a mirror as well, but what's interesting is uh, that the mirror is the person of God himself and in this context is the word of God. Now the scripture says that we are uh, 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 with an unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. So in other words, we're not seeing ourselves, although that's one aspect which we're just going to touch upon in James. But Paul's referring to the fact that we're beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We are seeing him, amen, as he is. We, we are beholding him as he is. And when we, uh, we have the presence of God in us, we have the word of God in, in us, with us, and the word is life. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And in doing so, the Spirit of God, amen, when we read the Bible, we are seeing God and we are beholding him in his glory. As the, the disciples, as they were with Christ, they said, we beheld his glory. The word became flesh. They saw the flesh, but we still have the word, amen. And when we see the word, we see and behold the glory of God. And we see, uh, and, in, and not only that, when we see the true nature of God, 
we see God's perfect nature as revealed to us in the scriptures. But we also, amen, as we, as we look upon the holiness of God, as we consider the glory of God, we also see ourselves. And this is what James is talking about. And we'll just go there for in, in the context because it does fit in James chapter 1. In verse 21, he says, Therefore, he's talking about to the Christians and he's telling them to be doers of the word and not hearers only. He says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now he's saying, when he says it is able to save your souls, he's not talking here about salvation. He's talking to people that are redeemed, not that they have to uh, work to be saved. He's talking about the word save uh, there is, uh, relates to salvation and it relates to um, being made whole. And so in Christ, amen, the work of God in us, we see that God is changing us. He is saving our soul. He is healing our soul. Because when we come to God, when we come to Christ, God accepts us as we are. And, and, and we have our position in him. But God will not let us remain the same. And he will begin to change us. And he will begin to work in our lives and to transform us. And this is where the glory is connected to, as we will see. But this is how God works. So he says, uh, receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And in doing so, I mean, that's how we are transformed. That's how the mind is renewed. That's how sanctification works itself through. Amen. And he says in verse 22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's another key aspect in part of this process of sanctification. You have to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. It's great to hear the word of God. It's great to hear the preaching as we do this morning. But when we go out of the doors and we go away for our week until we come and congregate together or whatever that may be, the issue is this. Are you being a doer of the word? Because if you're a hearer only and not a doer, you're deceiving yourself. And he, he uses an illustration for anyone. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of a man he was. You see, because when we sit under God's word, when we, hear, when we read God's word, when we hear the preaching and teaching of God's word, we see ourselves as we are. We have a glimpse, don't we? Because the mirror is there. But you see, it's easy just to walk out the door and forget what you saw. Oh, well, it's not that bad. You know, just put on a little bit of makeup maybe and cover it up. Who knows? But you see, uh, this is uh, the, the illustration that, uh, that James is giving us. And he says in verse 24, For he observes himself, goes away, immediately forgets what kind of a man he was. But verse 25, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, continues in it, is an interesting word, is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. The perfect law of liberty. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's not a liberty to do whatever you want. See, what it's saying is, is the Christian life now is not under the law of sin and death. We're under the law of the spirit of life in Christ. And the law, there is a law, the law of the spirit of life. Not the law of Moses as such. And it's not a law that's external that has to force you to do what you know you have to do. The Christian life is having Christ in you. It's the glory of God in you. And the spirit of life in Christ Jesus and the law of liberty at work in your life to lead you into truth. And that you will determine that you are going to walk in the truth and be obedient because the scripture says that if you continue in it. So if you look at the perfect law of liberty and you continue in it, you choose uh, out of a motivation of your love for God, out of your desire to please him, out of your desire to walk with him, out of your desire to abide in his glory. Then that becomes 
the key for your experience and relationship with God. You see, the Holy Spirit is the one who is working in us. Verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. There it is. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so we are being, we are being transformed. We are being changed. Even as a Christian in Christ, a new believer in Christ, I am holy. I am accepted. I am righteous. I have the Holy Spirit in me. The glory of God dwells. I'm the temple. But you see, the progressive aspect of God's glory relates to my transformation. I am being changed into his image. Romans 8 says in verse 28, there about 29, I am being conformed to the image of his son. In actual fact, it says, having been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God's predetermined purpose in depositing his glory in the believer, in the child of God, is to transform them and conform them to the image of his son. And in doing so, the more we become like Christ, the more the glory of God we experience in our lives. That's why not every Christian experiences the same level of glory. Depending on our obedience to God, depending upon uh, the manner in which we obey God, the manner in which we continue in the law of liberty to serve him and obey him and love him. And uh, otherwise, uh, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And that glory is diminished. The glory can be affected in certain ways and that's what we may consider next week. You see, we, ha- we are being changed. Now, the truth is, is none of us are perfect. Amen? But that's not an excuse this morning. You know, there's, uh, you've heard that sticker that says, <coughs> Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. But you see, we're missing the intent of God here. If that's your standard, then you've already lost. The glory is already on its way out. Because... We have to be walking in a manner that wants to please God. We have to be obedient. God is in the process of changing us. You know, through all the trials and tribulations of my life that I have been through, and I've come through some, as each of us have, some very trying times, but you know, out of it, I am being transformed. And so, and each time, God is changing me and conforming him to his image. He's changing certain qualities and characteristics in my life and habits and attitudes of heart that are not right. They're not godly. And I'm not standing here saying that I've arrived because I haven't. But I can't just rest and say, well, that's good enough. I've already got the glory. You see, that's not the attitude. The attitude, you have to be striving for excellence. You have to be working towards. You have to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it's God that's working in you. So the glory is deposited. Amen. But that glory wants to manifest in a greater dimension in our lives as we, amen, uh, obey God and work with God in this process of sanctification through the Spirit of the Lord, as Paul refers to. And so the truth is, <coughs> none of us have arrived, but should we not be progressing? And we should be, amen? And so we need to reflect upon these things in light of the glory of God because, you know, we need to ask ourselves, am I being changed from glory to glory? Or am I going from glory to, <laughs> well, who knows what? But whatever it is that's manifesting, if we yield to God, allow God to have his perfect work in us, because whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That we may be partakers 
and bear of the, of, of the fruit of holiness. And so uh, this is all these things are working towards, to form us into the, into the image of his Son, that we are, being, we are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And we are being changed and transformed into the same image. So there lies the progressive aspect and nature of God's glory in the believer. And I pray that we would see that I pray that we would walk worthy before the Lord, that we would consider these things in the light of God's Spirit because, because God in his love for us, amen, he will bring conviction into our lives. He will, he, he will at times, you know, God's grace is, is a wonderful thing, but there are times when God will put his finger on an area of our life and, and he'll say, this needs to change. You need to deal with this. And in doing so, we, become, we are being changed from glory. And that's why, I might, can I just share this, over the years when I've met men of God, elder men of God, as a young Christian and as a young minister, I observed many Christians and men of God and there were some men of God that just had a distinctive element into their lives and it was the glory of God in them. And I said, that's what I want. How did they get that? Now I can see how it works. God has shown me how this process. But you see, you don't want to be old and bitter, old and bent. The older we get, the more glorious we should be. The outward man can look whatever way it wants. It can have all the ailments it has. But out of my mouth will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so thank God for the new covenant. We're under the ministry of life, not death. And so... We need to continue in obedience. And that's maybe something, the Lord willing, that we'll look at next week. But let's leave it there for now. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Dear God, we just thank you, Lord, for the word of the Lord this morning. God, I just thank you for your word, for the Spirit of God, for this glorious covenant that we have in Christ. God, we're only just, we're just identifying some aspects of it, Lord. Give us greater knowledge and revelation of the glory of the new covenant. Because, Lord, that is what is relevant to us and not that which is future. Thank God for that. We await that. We're excited about that, Lord. But, God, that which is now, so that we can live in, in the fullness of God now and dwell in the land now and live in victory now, O oh Lord, as we understand our position and place in Christ Jesus, who has seated us in heavenly places. Hallelujah. God, we thank you for the glory of this new covenant, the glory that is in us, and, we're, and the fact that we're being changed from glory to glory. Continue your work, Lord. We just love you. We thank you for your faithfulness, love, and your goodness. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Amen.